Hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. It's Wednesday, wonderful Wednesday. That means smoke, mirrors, and the truth with Bruce Anderson. Yes, it is Wednesday here on the bridge, and that means smoke, mirrors, and the truth. Bruce Anderson joins us. Bruce is in Ottawa, as he usually is on this day. Um, hope you had a good break. As much happy as happy New Year to you, Peter. I had a good break. I'm happy to be back talking with you. I tried to convince my kids that the pandemic had been going on since 2019 the other night, and they said, "No, Dad, <laughs> you know you're losing the plot." So. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to getting connected again and staying on the plot. Well, let's, I don't want to dwell on the pandemic today. I did that yesterday, but I do want to sort of dwell on the politics of it because it kind of fits in our, you know, smoke mirrors and the truth theme. Um, there's a lot of stuff been going on on the political side, and there are a lot of differences, as often happens in this country, in the different way different provinces are handling uh, things on the um, on the health front, on the education front, um, and there there's the, you know the obvious uh, involvement of the uh, federal government in all this. Although we haven't until I guess it's going to be later today, uh, the prime minister uh, being involved in terms of being in front of the cameras and and, and talking about uh, the pandemic. Uh, where do you where, where's where do you see the lay of the land on the politics of the pandemic as we begin a new year? Well, uh, first of all, let me just say I'm an optimist that I think this wave, based on the evidence as I read it, is going to pass relatively soon, and that we're probably going to be feeling like we're clear at this. So, uh, by sometime in early February, let's say, um, Doctor Anderson. Well, no, I'm not trying to make a, a, a prediction. Uh, that's Clear of it by opinion. early February. That's uh, that's a very optimistic. Well, it, it is, but I kind I don't think it's going to be completely gone then. But I do think that we'll we'll be on the downslope of infections, hopefully, based on the data that seems to be developing around the world. And if that's the case, then the politics of the next four or five weeks might feel supercharged right now. Mm. But we might wonder. Uh, 10 weeks from now, why we invested so much energy in it in the same way that we did uh, last year around the question of when are we going to get vaccines. But I do think there are a couple of critical issues that are really animating the conversation at, um, at the individual and the family and the neighborhood level. One is schools. And it's a big, 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 big issue, both from the standpoint of how families function every day if they have school-aged children and they're trying to work at the same time and and also the, the impact on kids. And we see that debate playing out in the U.S. Uh, between the mayor of New York and the mayor of Chicago. There's a uh, they're very different perspectives. The Chicago teachers aren't showing up for school as of today. And the New York mayor is saying schools are essential and they must be open. So we're seeing that debate um, as a huge kind of dividing point. The second thing I think is that there's a continued conversation about testing. Um, it's become clear that Omicron is spreading more quickly um, to more people so that we don't really have and aren't likely to have the testing capacity for people to be able to really know whether they have COVID or not. And I think that maybe we never really sort of expected this day to happen, but here we are. And so people are being a little bit left on their own uh, to sort that out. And then the final piece is the hospital um, uh, 
the question of hospital crowding, will so many people need hospital support that we'll be overwhelmed? And the, and I have to say that the site of the Ontario premier doing a photo op at the convention center in Toronto with a bed saying he and his uh, finance minister, I think, we're going to make sure that there were enough beds for anybody that needed a bed in the convention center. I never thought I'd see that day. I'm kind of mystified why they thought that that was a good photo op, but also the bigger issue is that's a policy failure for sure. What did they have to go to the convention center or that they did a photo op there? Well, I think it was a poor choice of a photo op, but I think that the idea that, um, Doug Ford could have been saying last week where, you know, things are going to be remaining open and this week saying schools are closed and I'm getting some more beds for the uh, to put into the convention center, presumably because he's afraid that there would be lineups outside hospitals of people sick looking for care. Um, It just felt like the last couple of weeks might have been the time to start uh, getting people accustomed to the idea that there needed to be, in effect, field hospitals to support the health service needs of Ontarians. And, and so announcing that uh, the way that it was done just felt to me uh, very political in the sense of he didn't want to tell people bad news during the holiday period, even though it might have been better to to start preparing people for what we were facing. You know, um it's not been a good few days for Doug Ford since his kind of flip-flop on schools in the past week and some of these things, as you mentioned. And it's not, you know, it's just not, it's just not you saying that. I mean, there's some prominent Tories who are coming out of the, uh, Ontario Tories who are coming out of the, uh, you know, the woodwork, so to speak, in, in the last couple of days, raising real pointed questions about the performance of their party on this issue in this past week. And none of that bodes well for him just six months away from an election campaign. So let me throw this at you, not about Doug Ford in particular, but about leaders in particular. I mean, you've worked with leaders from different parties over many years. At a time like this, what is the public looking for from leader? It could be the prime minister, it could be the premier, it could be a mayor, it could be whatever. Wait, what is it? What's the bottom line of what they're looking for? Uh, understanding and competence. They want to know that the leaders understand the, the circumstance of the average person. Um, because there can easily be a tendency to see these folks as living a kind of a charmed life. They make lots of money according to the kind of the general averages um, uh, relative to the general average income. And they, and they kind of look like they live in a bubble. And so it can easy, easily be a situation where people are going through hardship. They look at political leaders and say, they don't understand what I'm going through. They don't understand what it's like to try to juggle the situation that I've got. Worry about my, my aging parents getting sick. Worried about my kids getting sick. Worried about how I'm going to manage my job in the context that I'm in. Worried about the cost of living. So understanding is uh, absolutely important. And then after that, it's competence. Are they making sound choices? And I guess I think that Doug Ford has maybe surprised some people 
by appearing to be better at understanding and empathizing than they might have expected, certainly better uh, than Donald Trump ended up being for most people. Um, But I think that where he's falling short for a lot of people right now, including you mentioned some conservatives, and I think this is maybe, you know, part of his challenge is will he hold his base if they feel like he's not really been all that competent and managing this crisis. I think the jury's still out on that. I think the chances of him winning are still pretty good on balance because the, uh, the, the progressive vote will split uh, or could split. But I think competency is the, is the question that's dogging him right now. Okay. I want to, I want to move to a different topic, which I don't think has been getting, I don't, and I think you share this opinion, I don't think has been getting the kind of attention in the last 24 hours, and I guess it's because of COVID, um, that it deserves. And that is the, the settlement that's been rumored for the last uh, couple of weeks, which was finally announced yesterday. It's not the final deal. I mean, the deal is not done as such, but it's as close to done as anyone can imagine, and that's the... Um, the $40 billion Indigenous Child Welfare Compensation and Reform deal that was announced by Ottawa and a number of the Indigenous groups yesterday in a, in a joint news conference. This is a huge deal, and it it's come together, I don't know, I think three things kind of intersected here. Uh, this is a historic deal, as, as many had uh, described it yesterday for good reason because it's part of our history uh, as a country uh, in terms of our treatment of especially indigenous kids Um, but three things kind of intersected one this government decided it it, you know in spite of the fact that it had been taking this issue to court over any number of years uh, and losing in court it decided that it was it was time you know, as we heard one of the ministers say yesterday, we couldn't sleep at night with this unsettled. So you had a government that had had decided that this had to be fixed. You had a public who was pushing them in that direction, clearly, ever since the uh, um, uh, Murray Sinclair report uh, had come out a few years ago, the the pendulum from the public's point of view has swung in favor of resolving some of these big indigenous issues and this one is 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 as great as any other one and finally there was this issue of the money 40 billion dollars you know three years ago to say we're going to settle something by paying 40 billion dollars would have been a huge story and would have prompted major debate that would last a long time and would become a big election issue and everything else. Uh, but perhaps because $40 billion does, doesn't sound that much anymore as a result of the last three years of the pandemic and hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on, uh, on trying to um, you know, deal with some of the uh, expenditures that are, have been confronted. So anyway, you have those three things intersecting to uh, eventually an agreement at the table, and yet... It's hardly caused a ripple, which I find, I'm not sure what it says about us, uh, you know, as a country, about the media in in the way it's been covered. 
I'm not saying it hasn't been covered at all because it has been, uh, but it ha- you know it, it's not the big banner story today that one would have thought that it probably could have been. What do you think? Well, I do think that the the people who have been urging this settlement, who've been helping negotiated it from the indigenous um, perspective, are it's legitimate for them to uh, keep the pressure on until this, all of the, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted on this agreement. I do think it's also reasonable to look at what's been happening in the last year or two on this file and say, uh, even if uh, there's room to criticize the Trudeau government for having embraced uh, the um, Sinclair report and said, we're going to implement all of the proposals and then finding that they couldn't really do that. There has also been um, significant movement on some crucial issues, water, boil water advisories. And now uh, with respect to this indigenous children's settlement. Um, and so I think that, uh, with varying degrees of hesitancies, slight skepticism, tentativeness. Uh, this is a historic day, and I happen to be an optimist about this. these measures that we've seen in the last year and a half or so really adding up to a unprecedented level of collective commitment to doing this. And when I say collective, that's the other thing that's really noticeable to me. I, I mean, I like you, I'm a little bit disappointed that there isn't, that there isn't more media attention to this. There was certainly lots of media coverage of the criticism of the government for continuing the court cases as it should have, as, as, as was legitimate. Uh, but I'm hoping that we see more opinion pieces commenting on the nature and the direction and the, and the value proposition in this arrangement that was announced yesterday. But the other thing that was interesting is I did notice that Jagmeet Singh uh, tweeted uh, a certain amount of I caused this to happen and uh, it's not done yet and we'll keep the pressure up. But at least he wasn't saying let's not do it. He was saying let's let's finalize this. And so he was essentially acknowledging that a political argument that was in his arsenal and that he used quite effectively in the run up to the last election is probably no longer in his arsenal if this deal gets concluded. And then I looked at the conservatives and I saw no comment on Twitter from Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the party, which to me suggests that they knew this was coming. The federal government had telegraphed the fact that yesterday was going to be an announcement on this. And so they had plenty of time to prepare to say something that sounded like we'll need to dig into the math of this. This is a big number, um, you know, or whatever else they wanted to do to criticize the government on this. And they did nothing. And so that is encouraging to me as somebody who is in favor of moving the yardsticks this way, because it says to me that the conservatives have decided that they don't really want to to prosecute this issue. And then I, I also look for Pierre Polyev, who, as you know, Peter has been on the record saying things like indigenous people need uh, work rather than handouts and that sort of comment. And it doesn't look to me as though he has weighed in on that debate so far anyway, unless I've missed it. And that would suggest to me that Aaron O'Toole has a certain amount of caucus discipline and strategy uh, around this, which is not to fight it 
but to uh, so that's another reason to feel a bit optimistic that this won't fall into the trap of politics again. You know, it's a it's worth remembering that it was in the early 2000s when Paul Martin was the prime minister and achieved the uh, the Kelowna Accord with Indigenous groups. Um, it, it wasn't it wasn't exactly the same as uh, as this in terms of what it was dealing with, but it was a big number. It was five billion dollars. Uh, which made all the headlines and uh, and and caused a degree of uh, ire within the uh, the opposition party, the Conservative Party at the time. And uh, Stephen Harper ran against it, promising he'd kill the Kelowna deal. <clears throat> excuse me, if he won, uh, and he did win, and he did kill the deal. Um, so this is the biggest deal since then that involves Indigenous groups, and it's eight times the money that was promised at that time uh so your your look at it sort of inside what's happening inside the conservative party on this one uh because you're right um and no no words from aaron o'toole yesterday on this subject he did tweet about other things including the cbc which is one of his hobby horses uh, in terms of what he wants to do with the cbc uh but he didn't on this one which, which is uh, interesting now i want to play I had a chance last night to uh, to talk to Cindy Blackstock, um, who, you know, is one of the leading Indigenous activists in the country. Um, she's the uh, executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, which was a, a major part of these discussions and these negotiations. And you saw everybody who spoke yesterday uh, thanking her uh, uh, for her involvement in all this. Um, so I talked to her last night. I've known her for uh, half a dozen years. Um, and, uh, she was the subject of one of the, of the profiles we did last year. Mark Bulgich and I did last year in extraordinary Canadians. In fact, I think she was the first chapter in that book. Um, but anyway, I wanted to talk to her because she was, you know, this deal is not finalized yet. As you mentioned, Bruce, uh, it seems like it's going to be, barring some unforeseen event. Um, but she was being cautious, and she, uh, you know, still was uh, last night when I talked to her. So let's listen to this for a few minutes um, and get a sense of, of what Cindy Blackstock is saying. Here we go. One of the interesting moments I watched you know, news conferences and statements being taking place, including by you. But it was before you when the Minister of Justice, David Lametti, said at one point, the only way we can sleep at night was to settle this. It's for the kids. I, I was wondering what you thought when you heard that. I thought the only way that I can sleep at night is knowing that the discrimination has stopped for the children. It's not so much a settling the litigation. It's about doing the right thing for them and for the country, ending what is really an apartheid public service system, and then reforming the government itself so it never does this to another generation of kids. To me, ending the litigation is kind of the window dressing of the problematic piece that really has brought the government to this point. I don't think they're ready yet to not have that accountability. You know, I... Yeah, I, I try to imagine all the different groups of 
negotiators, if you will, that you sat across the table from over the years and your predecessor sat ac- across from the table with, um, you know, this side's predecessors over the years. And I, you know, I, I wonder after I watched the events yesterday as to whether things have changed significantly. I mean, what is the level of trust like with the group that has put this deal such as it is at this moment together. You know, the elder said is integrity when, is when words have meaning. And I've always thought about that. And I've heard a lot of words from political actors of all kinds over the years. So I hear them, but I don't, uh, I really only trust when I see real change at the level of children. When I'm able to go into a community and a child tells me, you know what, today is a better day for me than yesterday was. That's really the metric. And the government will often say to people like me, well, you don't trust us. And I always say back to them, you don't act in trustworthy ways. I mean, we need to step back for a minute and realize that this moment today, this news conference, comes after 15 years of litigation, after a uh, countless legal orders for Canada to stop the discrimination. And even in 2016, when you and I talked on 101, just in the wake of that, and the government said it was going to change, Well, it didn't do it. And we've had 21 non-compliance orders since. So change to me is when they actually impact children and families in a good way. And they start to fix themselves. They start to really understand that they're the problem. But was was this deal the foundation of what could be real change? I mean, and that comes back to this trust word, you know, because it's not a done deal yet. Still a ways to go. But... The, the issue is, do you have faith in that group of people across the table, right up to and including the prime minister, mm-hmm. uh, that, this, that this is a deal, that this is the foundation of a deal that it, it, it not only could happen, but will happen? I have trust with insurance. So I am hoping that they've changed. I was encouraged when the ministers, for example, before we went into this negotiating space, said for the very first time that, the discrimination is ongoing. I'd never heard that from the government before. So that was a reason for me to be encouraged. Um, But this is a non-binding agreement. But the other good thing is that the tribunal is still around. The federal court is still around. So if necessary, if Canada doesn't follow through for kids, then we can go back to those forums, which are really the only forums that have resulted in real positive change for kids so far. That and the growing public pressure, which has been such a game changer in this case. So much attention is placed, and I guess not surprisingly so, on, on that money figure that, you know, $40 billion, it's a, that's a, it's a lot of money. Um, what real difference will that make to the kids who suffered through this over the years? What, what, could, what can you see as the difference for them as a result of this? Well, we have two groups of children. We have the ones who were hurt by Canada. And what that looked like is that the federal government would give them less money 
for family support services. So the trauma residential schools was piled on and then they had less help to get it, to recover from it. And children were going into care at rates higher than residential schools. Even when I entered into the national scene in 1997, we knew that. And the federal government acknowledged that it was underfunding these kids, but it just didn't fix it. Back then, had they fixed it, it would have been hundreds of millions of dollars and we wouldn't have seen the tragedy of the price of children's childhoods and even their lives being lost in ways related to these inequalities. They didn't do it. And now we're into the tens of billions of dollars. And that really is a lesson, is that when you, the government becomes aware of this wrongdoing, they ought to fix it right away. It's better for children. It's better for the country. When they kick these things downstream, that's when the number grows because so many kids are hurt. On the compensation side, we're talking about at least 60,000 children who were taken from their families when they would have had a chance to grow up safely at home. There's no amount of compensation that's going to compensate for that. But the tribunal has said that that damage is worth a minimum of $40,000. And I want to see that money paid, but done in a safe way for kids. Then the most important work is ending the discrimination that's still going on, this underfunding of services, and then making sure the government does it again. And here's the other piece that people need to be aware of. This $20 billion that is for fixing the discrimination in children's services in Jordan's principal and child and family, that's not dealing with water. That's not dealing with the inequalities in education and housing. We need something like a Marshall Plan to address this. Otherwise, there will be children paying with their childhoods and with their lives, And Canadians will see another multi-billion dollar deal downstream to compensate children for things that they can never get back. Was there a moment in this last few weeks or month when you suddenly said to yourself, this can happen, this looks like it can now happen? I think I felt like I have to try this. I have to... I have to do this for the kids because getting, if the government agrees to do these things, the help will come much quicker. But I was also really realistic that I can't give away the safeguards of the tribunal and the federal court at this early stage, that we need to see the change from the government. And so I know it's kind of a weird thing, like, uh, you know, the announcement of $40 billion and I should be over the moon. Um, but really where I'm at is I, I'm still looking up at the moon because to me, it only makes a difference when children's lives change. I'm not, I'm not one to do photo ops on uh, announcements or agreements or any of that stuff. It's really when things have gotten better for children and families and other than good words on paper, nothing changed for them today. Well, when it does change, it, it still could be it still could be a long time before you see that change you're looking for, right? Yeah, it could be. We're going to see, we'll have a couple of things that we're able to hold them to. So by April 1st, we should see additional family support services going out to all First Nations children in the country. That will be a big uh, amount of money uh, for First Nations families. Then we'll see supports for young people who are aging out of care, child welfare care, and young adults who have already done that who get some supports to help bridge them into into adulthood. Those are things, concrete things that we should 
BC by April 1st. That'll be our first time to put our finger up to the wind to see if the government is actually committed. Then after that, we need to do the work. Uh, we're working with uh, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy, Kevin Page's group, to make sure that we're costing this out in a good way and that the monies can actually be allocated to where they can be most effective. We need to do more work with that with the communities over the coming months to be able to land something that will be the long-term fix. And then we need to bring together experts to really take a look at the Department of Indian Affairs. You know, all the years it's been around, like residential school, 60 scoop this, no one has ever done an independent evaluation of that department, Peter. No one has ever kind of peeked behind the curtain and say, why aren't you guys, why are you messing up so badly when it comes to kids? That needs to happen. And so that it can actually change the way it thinks and acts so that it doesn't hurt another generation of kids. Last question. I I know you're hesitant and you have good reason um, to be hesitant given the setbacks you've had over the years. But in spite of being hesitant about uh, about you know doing the high five thing at this point yeah. when you look when you look across the table mm-hmm. at this group that you that you have come close to uh, reaching a deal with um do you do you hand out any you know not congratulations but thanks or you know a good spirit to those who you see on the other side of the table is it too early for that I try to, but I really, I, I always say to them, I'm, you know, this is not about you as a person. This is about a system. This is about changing a system so that it does the right thing at the right moment. Um, and they have an opportunity as a government right now to really be the first ones in history that don't pose a threat to First Nations children. That's the opportunity that they have. But that's going to take a lot of humility. And that humility involves understanding that the system still does pose a threat to First Nations children. And so their first job is to really focus in on who the actual victims are, which are the children, youth and families. Those are the people we should be giving thanks to, because it's through their truth telling and their voices that this change is possible. I'm not thanking myself. And I'm not thanking the government at this stage. What I want to do is, is really center the experiences of those families. They're going to be our beacon. And those are the groups that are going to pass judgment on us and tell us whether we, we met the challenge or whether we failed. Cindy, we've known each other for, uh, for a few years and we've seen some ups and downs in all this. And uh, I just hope this is the, this is the up that a lot of people think it is, but you're still wanting to see more delivery on this and i i can understand that but i know there was a bit of a smile on your face today and i hope that becomes a full and broader smile as we uh, as we move forward so thanks yeah so do i and most importantly when i see the smiles on the kids faces that will be just that will be um that'll be a wonderful day for the country and for humankind all around the world peter i'll say it sure would be um thanks for doing this it's great to talk to you again as always Thank you, Peter. All right. So there you go. Cindy Blackstock. That was last night, you know, a few hours after the uh, joint news conference and statements by ministers and indigenous leaders on the uh, deal that was reached yesterday. And it was Cindy Blackstock who was a part of all those negotiations, but it wasn't at that meeting. And you can see why 
she's being very, you know, cautious. Some may say overly cautious. Um, she's not doing the high five dance, as she says. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, speaking, you know, to some degree from a personal involvement. I mean, when you read her story, I mean, she was straight out of university. She was dealing with Indigenous kids in B.C., uh, and, and some of the worst possible cases, and and so she she's seen it, she's lived it, um, and you know she's you know she just like a lot of the people around that table yesterday, want to see that as part of our history, not as a part of our present. Um, but Bruce, your your take on that? Well, I thought it was a, a really interesting interview, Peter. I think she's obviously a very passionate and articulate and effective advocate for um, Indigenous uh, families and children. And uh, so I think her voice is is a really important voice. I think she will continue to play a role in shaping the national politics of this. As And I think she's been very effective in that role. I think that the uh, you know, some some of the ways in which she commented, well, I found myself kind of agreeing that obviously nothing is done until it's done and, and we need to keep the pressure up and we need to hope that um, the follow through is there. Um, I heard all of that. I agree with all of that. At the same time, sometimes I kind of look at politics and go, when you get to a place where some sort of a breakthrough has happened, I always worry that these these things can fall down unless the politicians who are kind of working on them feel as though not that they're thanked, because I think that's a really different thing. I thought it was interesting that you had the conversation about should we be thanking people in politics and that sort of thing is I, I don't really think this is a situation where a successful resolution really requires people to thank uh folks in government. And I, I noted Mark Miller's comment yesterday to the effect of this is a problem that's been on the backs of children who haven't had a, a fair break. And I think that's the right way to look at this. I think that if I'm, if I'm kind of looking for something else, it's more from the standpoint of how does the political system maintain this momentum? Uh, always knowing that even on, on this issue, on issues like climate change, politics can be, you know, can have very fragile consensus. I, I love the fact that there's consensus today, that there appears to be consensus today. I love the fact that there's senior ministers in this government who obviously have the support of the prime minister and the finance minister they, who kind of controls the treasury side of this. Um, this is more political traction than I've seen Um maybe in my lifetime on these issues. And so there's a part of me that looks at politics and always worries that traction goes away unless it's nurtured, but uh, she's right to uh, approach this the way that she does. And um, I'm hoping that there continue to be voices that say something a little bit more than nothing happened yesterday. Cause I do think something happened yesterday and, and I understand why she wants to say that nothing happened yesterday and, and that she's, saying that something will happen when this deal is done and all signed off. But I do think something happened yesterday and, and, um, and I hope more happens to follow. What did you think? Uh, I think we're, we're in the same vein. I think she was playing a very, 
not playing. She was exercising, you know, her her own history on this issue and her own personal history to say, this is what we need to have happen, but it's not there yet. And I'm just, I want to be cautious. I think she made a deliberate move to not be at that, uh, at that news conference to just show, to give herself, you know, some distance. Um, I mean, as you said, I mean, she's passionate about this. She, it has been her passion since the day she walked out of UBC um, and, and, and began work as a, you know, as a childcare advocate eventually. Uh, and she, you know, saw a lot of awful things. And as, you know, and she and Mark Miller agree on that this has been on the backs of kids. It's not about us. You, know, you can make that argument about, uh, about government's involvement. Um, over more than a century, but um, but it's been on the backs of kids, and that's where where the end result of this, if the deal is completed as as discussed, will be seen, and future generations will just look in the history books to find out what had happened. They won't need to, you know, look at different parts of Canada and still see it happening. So that'll be a big plus. Let me ask you one thing, and it links back up to our leadership question from earlier before we even got into this. Uh, were you you called it one of the most consequential decisions that you've witnessed in your lifetime? I, I, I agree with that. Uh, and it, you know, it's the biggest class action lawsuit ever. I mean, I can't remember the last time, a pandemic aside, that uh, this government has spent $40 billion on something. Um but were you surprised that the that the prime minister wasn't at the table for the announcement yesterday? I mean, this was you know this comes out of his original promises from 2015. You can argue about how how fast some of these things have, have been delivered, um, and some still waiting to be delivered. But it was kind of his promise, um, and. I, I just wonder, given the nature of it and the size of it, whether you're surprised that he wasn't there. Uh, no, I, I guess I'm not. I hadn't thought about it since until you asked the question, Peter, but um, I'm not. And probably for a couple of reasons. I mean, I think the most important reason is that I think when he asked Mark Miller, somebody who he's known since he was a teenager, um, to take on this job, it wasn't a, you know, it was an act of, of political trust and personal trust and personal confidence. It wasn't some sort of a reward for having done a good job so far in politics. It was, a, this is going to be a difficult job and I, you know, I need you to keep on working on it. I need you to keep, you know, to kind of accomplish even more in this, uh, in this next term. And so I think probably the calculation I hesitate to use the word, but the consideration was um, he's an extremely effective uh, minister. Uh, Witness the progress that he made against tight timelines that weren't his timelines uh, on water and boil water advisories. And on this, he's a very effective spokesperson on this. I think you and I have kind of talked about this, that he, 
speaks a language in politics that is more blunt and simple and straightforward and effective. Um, and that he probably personally, along with Patty Haidu, but but he in particular, maybe in the last little while, has developed a level of conversation and and I hesitate to use the word trust, given what Cindy Blackstock was saying, and, and I respect that. But if trust has been nurtured, if the seeds of trust are planted and taking root, he's had a lot to do with that. And so letting him be front and center isn't just allowing him to take credit for it. It's making sure that the that the various parties to this agreement see him in that role and see he and Patty Haidu as being kind of united in the way in which government is going to approach it and maybe achieving some of the bigger, the, the, the more structural breakthroughs that Cindy Blackstock was talking about in terms of how government approaches Indigenous people more generally and her comments uh, uh, with which I completely agree that that is a, a really important part of it. So I think it was a good example of a prime minister saying, I've delegated responsibility. These two ministers have done effective work on this and let's let them talk about it. Um, I, listen, I agree with you on Miller, and we were, we were sort of on the record on that. I, I think, uh, and he's been a guest on this on this podcast. So, um, you know, I, I appreciate what he's done. He's still got work to do on both boiled water advisories. There's still a few dozen communities, uh, but far from the couple of hundred when he took over um, responsibility for part of this portfolio at some time. Uh, and what I liked about is that he stayed in in the Indigenous Affairs orbit after that last cabinet shuffle, where history has shown us through past Liberal governments and past Conservative governments that that portfolio has been tossed around like, uh, get me out of here, I've had enough. He hadn't had enough, and he still hasn't had enough. And my guess is he wants to stay there uh, until all the boxes are checked and what needs to be done to make it a more fair and equitable uh, relationship for indigenous communities and kids and adults uh with the uh with the country as a whole um all right uh, good discussion and uh you know i'm i'm glad we uh, spent a lot of time on it there are uh, other things on the political front of course and uh i look forward to you coming back on friday with Chantel for good talk our first good talk of the year um and uh, and lots to chat about uh at that time which we will do. So uh, good to talk to you and uh, and have a great 2022. Same to you, Peter. Uh, this hopefully is going to be like the last month of full-on COVID. And uh, then we could talk about other things too. Boy, I, listen, I hope you're right. Uh, you, you, can, you can be sure, though, that if, if in early February, on your prediction, if it's not holding true, I won't bring you're- it up. Oh, you're going to get letters. I understand. I'm fine with that. I feel (laughs) like somebody's got to be cheerleading for the end of this thing and put a marker down and, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. But that's that's where I'm at right now. Let's hope you're right. Dr. Anderson joining us from uh, from Ottawa on this day. That's it for uh, Smoke, Mirrors and the Truth for this first episode of 2022. Uh, Tomorrow, Pope Ree and some letters. Lots of good stuff for tomorrow. Friday, good talk. Chantel and Bruce will be with us. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours.